Church, go ahead and have a seat. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're new with us, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Our lead pastor, Sean Eppers, is actually away this weekend. He's getting some much-deserved R&R, so he's enjoying a little camping this weekend. Um, and so if you would, let's just keep him in our prayers, right? Let's, let's pray that God would deeply refresh Sean this weekend as he has an opportunity to get away. I know he, would, uh, he covets your prayers and he would deeply appreciate you doing that for him. But this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to continue in our study through the Sermon on the Mount. And so over the last several weeks, we've been looking at one of the most famous sermons or discourses Jesus gave during his short three years of ministry. And our hope at the end of it all is that we would allow the spoken words of Jesus Christ to inform us, to shape us into the person and disciple that God wants us to be. That's our hope. When we read the Bible at all, that's what we want. We want the word of God to transform us, to move us, and cause us to respond in such a way that God would be glorified. And so at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus walks us through the Beatitudes. And he says, those, that desire to the king, those who desire the kingdom of heaven will be blessed. And they will be blessed because they will be poor in spirit. They will mourn over their sin. They will hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be merciful and they will seek peace. And he goes on to say that when we live like this, when you seek the kingdom of heaven through the righteousness of God, then you will shine like the light of Christ on this world. You'll be a city set on a hill where people will look up to you. Jesus says your way of life will have influence on those around you. You will impact others in this world. It's amazing when you think about it. And so finally, last week, we studied Jesus saying something that would have been completely shocking to his listeners. Jesus tells his disciples, those that have gathered around him, that their righteousness is going to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. The righteousness that Jesus is calling them to is going to be higher and greater than that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And during biblical times, they were the most, they were the most righteous people around, at least outwardly. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, look, guys, I know the way of the Pharisees. I know the way of the scribes. I know the life that they live, but I'm calling you to a way of life that is more authentic, more deep, and less unhypocritical than that of the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, I'm telling you to look at the heart of the matter. He's asking us to look at our hearts. I'm telling you that you must live this way if you want to arrive in heaven, Jesus says. And so to those listening, and maybe even us, us in this room today, this should seem almost hopeless. It's almost defeating. It's an impossible feat for us to live up to the standard of righteousness that Jesus is calling us to. What Jesus is asking of his disciples and what he's asking of us can't be done with our own brilliance or our own grit. And this is what's really important for us to understand and grasp. Jesus is saying that if you come to me, if you trust in me, if you receive the power of the kingdom through me, if you will be cleansed on the inside by the forgiveness and love of God that I offer, if you, if you bank all of your hope on my promises, and if you let my ransoming death cover all your failures and all your imperfections, then and only then will you be able to live this way. And when you do, he says, your life will be the light of the world it will prove that you are a child of God. The righteousness of your life will be on full display for the world to see. You will have influence in this world and it will glorify the Father. 
He says this in Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So that's where we've been the last few weeks. And so where we're going to pick up today is Jesus is right in the middle of showing us what this kind of righteousness looks like in real life. Jesus is giving these six statements of what it looks like on a day-to-day basis to live a life of righteousness. Last week, we saw that, um, we saw what it looked like when dealing with anger and lust and divorce. And today, he's going to speak into three other areas, oaths, retaliation, and loving your enemies. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. That's where we're going to begin this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up there. Matthew 5, verse 33. Jesus says this, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform the Lord, perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than this comes from evil. Now what Jesus is clarifying for his disciples here is something that the Pharisees had actually been quoting out of Leviticus 19 where it says this, Leviticus 19:12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You see, this command was given by God to the Israelites because they were making and declaring these huge oaths to cover up things. Whether they were lies or mistakes, they were just trying to stretch the truth a bit. It's like you telling your spouse, look, honey, I swear on God's name that it's going to be different this time around. I swear on God's name that I won't ever do that again. I swear I won't look at or lust for another woman. I swear I won't seek the approval of another man that isn't you. I swear to God that I'll work less this year. I swear, I swear, I swear. You see, when you make these bold claims because you've failed so badly before, When you make these grand gestures, these grand promises, and then fail, it just sets people up to second-guess your character. And this was the exact problem that the Israelites found themselves in during that time when Leviticus was written. They were swearing on the name of the Father, but yet had no intention on following through. And so God gave them this commandment because he wanted the Israelites to understand that taking an oath in the name of the Father was a serious thing. It wasn't meant to be used to cover up lies or mistakes or stretch the truth or get out of the fact that they were trying to honor their word. And so the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they understood that, at least to some degree. You see, the Pharisees Pharisees said, okay, we're going to obey that command. We won't swear falsely in the Father's name because that's a serious deal. But if we swear on Jerusalem or on the heavens or by my head, then that oath, what we have said, it's almost optional. It gives us an out. We don't really have to honor our word then. And I know this sounds ridiculous when we read this. It's almost childish that the Pharisees would come up with these other oaths. But the truth is, is when it comes to honoring our word, sometimes we'll look for every avenue and opportunity to get out of it. Again, in today's world, when someone's trying to get out of something, they might say, hey, I swear on my mama's grave, I won't do that again. Whatever oath or promise that they have to make in order to move past the situation, to move on, then they'll do just that. And what Jesus is saying is that this is not okay. 
Your word cannot be optional. Don't swear on anything. Don't make any kind of promise if you don't plan on keeping it. Now, Jesus isn't just making up some sort of new law for his disciples here. But rather what he's doing, as Sean pointed out last week, is he's actually elevating the Old Testament law. He's elevating the law that's already in place. Jesus is cutting through the garbage of what the Pharisees are trying to do here. And he says, look, this Old Testament law is just trying to drive you to be honest in all areas. But if the oaths that God originally intended to bring out truth instead are used for deceit, then as my disciples, you should avoid them completely. Now, if we step back for a moment and we look at the Pharisees and we say, gosh, they're being super childish, it's easy for us to knock them. But when we stop and think about it, we see how easy it is to kind of fall into that way of thinking, to fall into that way of life. When we're honest, we would say that there's all kinds of reasons why we lie. There's all kinds of reasons why we stretch the truth or why we exaggerate or why we withhold information. Sometimes it's to avoid conflict. Sometimes we lie to protect our reputation. Sometimes we lie because our pride and ego are so big that we don't, others, we don't want others to see that we actually fail from time to time. But if we're going to be a church, us in this room, those that have locked arms and said, Providence North Community Church is my home. If we're going to be a church that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, if we're going to strive to live the life that Jesus asks us to live, then the truth of our speech and the reality of our promises should need no guarantee. Because when we add oaths to what we have to say, we're either admitting that we have to, have to say can't be trusted or we're lowering our standards to that of the world. And Jesus says that this only comes from evil. Jesus is saying, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Simply put, just tell the truth. Be a person of integrity. Or as we say in the Agnew home, say what you mean and mean what you say. And so when this becomes a reality in our lives, when we live in such a way that there's no need to cover up lies or to deceive others or shade the truth, and we seek to make the world we live in a place where oaths aren't needed, when we live a life of integrity, then the world around us will see and experience a level of transparency that is so foreign to them that they won't be able to ignore it. They won't be able to ignore it. So Jesus says, be a person of integrity. Mean what you say and say what you mean. And he continues on. Verse 38, Matthew 5. Jesus says this. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you or take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, right here, Jesus, again, he's quoting the Old Testament. Exodus 21 says this, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And we read, when we read that verse right there, it almost comes off barbaric, doesn't it? It almost comes off barbaric. Like this is something you would only see in a mobster movie, right? Godfather, like an eye for an eye kind of thing. When we see this, we tend to think of ourselves quite more civilized, quite more compassionate than that. So when this law was written and given by Moses, this was the most civilized and compassionate law that there was. 
During biblical times, if anyone stole another person's sheep, then they would return and steal the whole herd. Or if someone insulted another, then the retribution would be paid in bodily harm. Because much like today, much like today, believe it or not, when someone hurts us, there is something inside of us, this human sin nature that makes us want to do something way worse to that other person. We feel like we need to teach them a lesson. We want them to experience our pain and we want their pain to be worse than what we experienced. That way they'll think, about, they'll think twice about ever doing that again in the future. It's this universal thing that we all feel, this need for vengeance. And so what Jesus is gonna do in this passage is he's gonna give us four examples that we would naturally in our human sin nature want to quickly act and retaliate. And not just retaliate, but cause more harm than what was done. Like an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. But not only does Jesus tell us not to retaliate, he instructs us to respond quite differently. For instance, in verse 39, it says this, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now on the surface, this seems pretty simple, right? To understand why we'd want to retaliate. You're getting slapped. No one likes that. And it's shocking that Jesus asks us not to retaliate, but to in turn, turn the other cheek. But when we take a deeper look at his words here, I think we're going to see what Jesus is saying is even more outrageous. Jesus says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him uh, the other also. Now, in order to slap someone on the right cheek, what hand do you need to use? Your left hand. But in biblical times, they didn't use their left hand. The left hand was considered ceremonially and literally unclean. And you ask the question why they didn't have toilet paper. So I'll leave it at that. All right. So they didn't use their left hand. So in order to slap someone on the right cheek with your right hand, how do you slap them? With the backhand. Now this is not just a slap. This is an insult. This is what Roman soldiers did to their slaves. This was a huge insult to be slapped with the right, with the right hand on the right cheek. And Jesus is saying, when this happens, don't retaliate, but instead turn the other cheek so that they literally have to backhand you again. You get backhanded on the right cheek. He's saying, turn around and offer the left cheek so that they have to backhand you again. Crazy. Don't retaliate, but yet be generous with what you have. Verse 40 says, if someone sues you for your tunic for one reason or another, then depart with it willingly. But Jesus says, we take it a step further. He says, we're to give away our cloak and our outer garment as well, basically leaving you naked. This again would have been shocking, almost outrageous to hear during these times because Mosaic law says that the outer garment is considered an unalienable right to keep. No one should have to walk around naked. So is Jesus advocating that we do that? Is Jesus saying that if someone takes our shirt and our pants that we give them our undergarments as well? No. I want to be clear here. Jesus is not advocating for you to be a doormat. He's not advocating complete passivity, right? He's not. The reason I can stand firm in that and the reason we can too is we know that Jesus was not a passive guy. When we look later on in the book of Matthew, you see Jesus going to the temple and he observes all these evil men who are cheating worshipers out of their money. And so he methodically puts together this whip he returns and he drives out all of their sheep. He knocks over all their tables and he knocks over all their money. Jesus was not a passive guy. 
So I'm not saying that Jesus is advocating for us to ignore the evil that we see and experience. Rather, what Jesus is continuing to get at is the heart of the issue. Both with the backhanded slap and giving all that you have to those that sue you, Jesus is saying that we're going to be a people who demonstrate meekness, a people that demonstrate quiet strength, a people that aim for peace in every opportunity, then we're going to be a people that don't retaliate with violence. We're not going to be a people that meets evil with evil. We're, not going, to be, we're going to be people who shock our enemies. We're going to shock them with peace, self-control, generosity, and prayer. Jesus is saying that we don't sink to the level of our enemy, but rather give generously to those that cause us harm. He continues on in this passage in verse 41 and 42. And he says, by the law of the land, if a soldier asks you to carry his 50-pound pack, then carry it for a mile, then you carry it for two miles. Or if a beggar, for one reason or another, is in a place of need and they ask you for money or want to borrow money, then you give generously. But why is Jesus saying all this? Why is he using these examples of living a life of righteousness? I think Jesus is reminding us of something very important. He wants us to recognize that if we're living in his kingdom, when we're operating out of his power, then we're going to be poor in spirit. We're going to be poor in spirit. And the reason this is so is because we realize that God has been nothing but generous towards us. He's been nothing but generous towards us. Even though we were nothing but evil towards him. Even though we've done nothing but spit on him, slap him, take from him, ask him to carry our burdens, beg from him, God has been merciful, he has been generous, he has been pure in heart. God was the one that sought peace with us through his son, Jesus. And so that's how God wants us to respond to others who hurt or harm us. God wants us to live and respond with such love and generosity that the light of Christ would shine from us even when they are our enemies. And that's why he says in verse 43, he's continuing this idea of those who harm you. He's taking it into this next section in verse 43. Says this, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now again, Jesus is quoting the Pharisees again. Because they got this from Leviticus 19, but as they typically did, they would modify this verse to fit their own understanding and their own agenda. And they'd say, well, if I love my neighbor, then logically, I should hate my enemy, right? So that's what the Pharisees would say. Even though that last part about hating your enemy was nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees thought they had everything figured out. But then their logic started to break down because people started asking, well, then who's my neighbor? In fact, this question they asked Jesus in Luke 10, and the answer that he gave them was, again, typical Jesus fashion. It was shocking and provocative. Perhaps you remember this one. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. It's the story of the Jewish man who was walking along one of the most dangerous paths during his time, and he comes alongside these robbers, and they beat him, and they leave him nearly dead on the side of the road. Well, then along comes a priest and a Levite walking on that side of the road, and they both see this Jewish man lying half dead, what do they do? They cross, the, they cross the street and they go along the other side of the path. Well, then here comes the Samaritan. The Samaritan who were, the, the people of Samaria who were neighbors of Israel, who were natural born enemies of the Jews, this Samaritan comes up and he jumps into action. 
And not, not only does he care for the Jew and he brings him to a place to restore his health, but he goes even further and he pays for the Jewish, man, Jewish man's stay and his cost to bring him back to health. And so Jesus, in this story in Luke 10, he wraps up everything and he asks the Pharisees, who do you think is the neighbor? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? And the Pharisees respond, the one who showed mercy. Jesus says, exactly. Those who inherit the kingdom of God will be merciful. Now go and do the same. So what Jesus is telling us in the Sermon on the Mount is that our neighbor could be our enemy. It could be our enemy. Verse 43, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus is saying that you need to love your neighbor even if your neighbor is your enemy. So let's ask the question, well then who is your enemy? Well, how Jesus defines it here is it's anyone who persecutes you, anyone who harms you, anyone who causes you pain. Verse 44, pray for those who persecute, persecute you. That's who Jesus defines as an enemy. Anyone who draws this desire for retaliation from you. So it could be your literal next door neighbor. It could be someone at work. It could be a friend that's turned against you. It could be someone in your immediate family. It could be your spouse. It could be a complete stranger. And Jesus is telling us to do what? He's telling us to pray for them. Really, Jesus? Why? Why would I do that? When we pray for God's love to break through to that person that we consider to be an enemy, then God's heart is slowly going to take over our heart for that person. God's desires for that person will become our desires for that person. And we see what God's heart is for those people those who persecute us in verse 45. Look at it again. The text says, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus says that God lavishes his grace on the very same people that would spit in his face if they had a chance. He gives them rain. He gives them sunshine, just like he does to you and I. And what we know today is that no one had any idea what was coming. No one knew the fact that God was gonna give his enemies the ultimate gift of his son dying on the cross. He even gave that incredible gift to enemies like you and I. We were once his enemies. Romans 5 verse six says this, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Paul says that you and I, us in this room today, we're still God's enemies and yet he sent his son to die for us. What kind of incredible sacrifice is that? What kind of incredible, abundant and undeserving gift of love is that? Well, that's what Jesus is asking of us. 
He wants us to have the same kind of heart and give the same kind of love as that of God. And God gave that to us even though we were still his enemies. Nobody else in this world is going to tell you to do that, right? Nobody else in this world is going to point you to that kind of love. Nowhere in this world will you find that kind of logic, especially for those that have caused you harm. This world's going to tell you that you need to stand up for yourself. They might even say that you need to get even. You should seek vengeance. That's what the world's going to tell you. That's what your natural-born sin flesh may even tell you. But Jesus says you need to love that person. You need to love that person because in this text, Jesus says you are, in fact, a son of the Father who is in heaven. And that's what he does. And if that's what our Father does, if we are children of God, if that's what our Father does, then it's natural that his DNA would be passed down to his children and we would exhibit the same kind of characteristics. If your heavenly father shows that kind of love, then we should as well. And so basically what Jesus is saying here is that loving your enemy is proof that you're a child of God. It's proof. Now I can see it. Great, Josh, love my enemy. How do I do that? What does that kind of love look like? I believe what Jesus is saying is that we're supposed to care for our enemies. The same way that God does when he says that he sent, God sends the rain and the sun to give them food and to give them war, warmth to both the just and the unjust. We should be praying for our enemies. We should be caring for our enemies. We should be providing for their needs just like the good Samaritan did to the Jewish man that was left for dead on the side of the road. But what I think this world needs most and what we need most isn't material needs. This broken, troubled, and hurting world needs something much more than material needs. What this world needs above all things, what we need above all things, is the love, kindness, forgiveness, and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we pray for them. Now, I know this part of this passage, loving your enemies, is difficult for some in this room. I know that because it's tough for me. I know that because there's been people in my, my life that have purposefully meant to cause me harm. And I know that there's people in this room today that have been deeply and purposefully hurt by people in their past as well. So if you're anything like me, just the thought of praying for those who have hurt you, praying for those that have caused you harm, praying for those that have deceived you, if you're anything like me, it sends me into this bit of an emotional tailspin. And perhaps like I've felt many times before, you have this bitter resentment towards another that you just can't shake off. And when it comes to this passage, you say to yourself, well, God, I have a reason to be bitter. I have a reason to carry on that hurt, that unforgiveness, that hatred for the one who hurt me. What that person did to me was totally unrighteous, totally undeserved. This is righteous anger that I have, God. So it's up to that other person at this point. They're the ones who sinned. They're the ones who caused me harm. They're the ones who persecuted me. They're the ones who should make it right. They're the ones to make the first move, not me. And so if that's how you feel today, I want you to know that I understand. I get it. I've been there. And during that time, when I held that resentment, it was dark days. 
I know that kind of resentment towards others. I know what it is to desire retaliation on those that have harmed you. But over the years, God's wrecked me of that. Jesus has had to remind me many times that he's not asking the light to shine from those that I forgive or pray for. Rather, he's asking the light to shine from me. And over the years, Jesus continues to say this. He reminds me over and over again that he's going to give me the power through his Holy Spirit. And that's when I start praying for that person. That's how this process of living a life of righteousness, even with those that have caused us harm, is going to begin when we drop to our knees and we start praying. Because when you consistently pray for someone who hurt you, then your heart is going to begin to mold and shape and transform into the heart of God toward that person. And you will begin to desire what God desires for that person and love them the way that God loves them. Of course, that's if you're not praying for God's wrath to be poured out on that person. But really, if you're praying for God's love to break through to that person, then God's heart is going to take over your heart. God shows us his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? Even while we were still his enemies in the eyes of God, he offered up his only begotten son to die for you and I. And Jesus is saying, this is how you are to love. This is how you're to love. But he doesn't just give us this commandment and leave. No, he decides to exemplify this for us. He examples this for his disciples and for us today. Jesus shows us what it looks like to pray for those who persecute you, those who harm you, those who lie to you, those who make you want to retaliate. Look at Luke 23, 34. After standing silent while being accused, after being beaten and scorned, after being forced through the town with a cross on his back, after being spit on and mocked, and finally as the iron spikes are being driven through his hands and his feet, the text says what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If the brutality of his undeserved punishment, if the cruelty of his torture and his crucifixion could not silence Jesus' prayers for his tormentors, for those who persecuted him, then I ask this question. What pain in this world, what pride do you have, what prejudices in your heart could justify the silence of your prayers for those that have hurt you? That's why Jesus says in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Not sinless. God knows better than anyone else that we'll never be sinless on this side of heaven. But rather Jesus is saying, you need to love with the perfect love of God the father. Love that doesn't require anything in return. Love that casts out fear because there's no room for punishment or retaliation in that kind of love. Because that's how God loves us. This may be a surprise to some of you in this room, but God doesn't love you because you're such a lovable person. He doesn't. He doesn't love you because he's desperate to have your love back. Why do you think he loves you? He loves you because he chose you. He continues in that same love no matter what you do. 
Why? Because he chose you. Because God is love. The older I get, the more unlovable parts I see of myself. The more I'm amazed at why God would choose to love such an unlovable guy like me. Every single day, every single time I realize just how much I fall short, how wretched I am, how horrible the thoughts that I have that run through my mind, the pure selfishness that resides in me, the more I'm astounded that God actually loves me. And so when I find myself struggling with passages like this, and perhaps you do today as well, then I ask myself in light of God's love for me, how could I ever withhold my love from anyone else? How could I possibly do that while knowing and experiencing God's incredible, unending, undeserved love for me? Typically, when we finish the service, we'll, we'll sing a little bit. I'm going to invite the band back up. Guys, if you want to come back up. Typically, what we do is we just, when we hear sermons, we pack up, we go, and Oftentimes, it's, it's quick and easy to forget about what we just talked about. I've been thinking about it for about 40 hours this week, but you've got an hour to kind of absorb all that. And so, why not take the time to put into practice what we just talked about? This is a tough passage. It's easy for us to walk away and say, you know what, maybe that one's not for me. But these are Jesus' words spoken directly to us. So I think it'd be a good time to just do that. Take that opportunity to actually do what Jesus has commanded us to do, and that's to pray for others. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want us to um, just take a few minutes to be silent. Kids, I'm so glad you're in here. I'm so glad you're in here. You get the opportunity to see your parents pray, your parents worship, your parents listen to teaching. I think this is an incredible opportunity for all of us to pray together. And so kids, if you're listening this morning, there might be someone in your life that's been bugging you, someone that's hurt you, and so this text talks about going and praying for them. I don't know what they've done or how they've done it. And, and I'm sure you're hurt over it, but Jesus says we're to pray for them. And so we're gonna do that as a group this morning. We're gonna do that before we head out. I'm gonna lead you through a couple prayers and then we'll worship one last song and do something special at the end. But let's just take a moment now and just kind of silence our minds, quiet our hearts get ready to take whatever it is that's on our hearts to the cross.